verses 5 through the end of the chapter. Um, So give your attention to the reading of God's word. Uh, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him, you made him For a little while, lower than the angels, you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the found should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver those who through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. For for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted... He is able to help those who are being tempted. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Uh, We pray, Holy Spirit, um, it's your function. It's kind of your responsibility within the Trinity um, to uh, having inspired these very words, uh, the one who wrote them and the words themselves. Um, having preserved them now for close to 2,000 years, uh, we pray that you would now be at work in them and by them in our own hearts and lives. Would you, would you use this, your very word, to strengthen and comfort your people and to challenge those to uh, draw into the household of God those who are not? We ask all of this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. I know some of you will um, will wonder, given uh, if I had to make a choice, which I would choose. You know, the Princess Bride is quotable. Uh, more quotable than the Princess Bride, though, uh, is C.S. Lewis. Um, and and you know all the great conversations and the discussions in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Perhaps my favorite quote comes. From Caspian, Uh, near the end of Prince Caspian, uh, Caspian says to Aslan, uh, I should have wished to have come of a more honorable 
lineage. To which Aslan responds, you come of the Lord Adam and the Lady Eve. That is both honor enough to erect the head of the poorest beggar and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor on earth. In that one response, Aslan, Lewis, Aslan, captures the reality of life as man, as people, having been created with honor and yet having relinquished that honor, now bearing shame because we have relinquished that honor. In that one short response, Aslan sort of captures for Caspian the the two realities uh, that, that you and I live in. We were created to be something. That is honor. We are not that thing. There's the shame. And, and this passage points us the, to, the, to the solution, quite honestly, for the problem. If it's true that being a descendant of Adam and Eve, if it's true that coming from the Lord Adam and Lady Eve is supposed to be honor, then how can we restore that honor? And if it is as a result of a of our disobedience, if it is shame, then how can we deal with the reality of that shame? First, the honor relinquished. You notice in verses 5 through 8, the writer uh, quotes from Psalm 8. Now, you may have to Google because see, he only says it has been testified somewhere. He doesn't exactly tell us where. Now, you, you remember his audience is, is a Jewish audience. And you also maybe notice that this quote isn't exactly the way we had it written in our Old Testament reading just a few minutes ago. There were a few tweaks here and there. He's quoting from the Septuagint. That's fancy words for, that's a fancy word for the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So even before the time of Christ, the, the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek. That was the language of the day, the language of the people. And he's using that Greek translation as his main text, his main source. And so you and I may have to go, well, he just told me testified somewhere. Now I got to go Google, right? I got to go to Bible Gateway, you know, ESV.org and figure out, okay, where does it say this? And then, you know, only to discover it's from Psalm 8. His audience would have known. But they also would have known, and I hope you got a sense of this. Um, in moving from our Old Testament reading to this passage, I hope you kind of felt your brain um, in, in tension a little bit. Because the Jewish reader, and when we read Psalm 8, we hear, well, we don't hear a psalm about Jesus. We hear a psalm about us. You read Psalm 8 and, and there's nothing there. What is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man, you made him a little lower than you. We go, well, that's us. And the reality is that's true. The psalmist in writing Psalm 8 is actually reflecting back on creation. He's reflecting back on Genesis 1, 26 to 28. And in those verses, we discover our honor. Right? Of all the critters made on earth, we alone bear God's image. We alone are given the assignment of ruling over creation in God's place. 
We alone are given the the title, the authority. Okay, maybe not the title exactly, but you and I alone are given, Adam and Eve, we're given the, the authority, the title of vice regent. That's their honor. And, and when you read Psalm 8, that's exactly what you hear. And that's exactly what this audience would have heard. They would have known, okay, Psalm 8, that's about man and, and creation and, and looking back to the very beginning. They would have recognized in Aslan's words, there's the honor. The honor to to raise the head, to erect the head of the poorest beggar on earth. Because man alone was made in his image. Man alone was set in the garden and given the command to rule over everything. That command wasn't given to the angels. It was given to Adam and Eve. And yet the writer here in Hebrews is going to grab Psalm 8 and make it about Jesus. Something that their audience, his original audience, wouldn't have heard. Something that you and I, I hope, didn't quite hear that when we were reading our Old Testament reading a few minutes ago. Now, if I could make a side comment. Um, That's kind of how Revelation works. Right. Revelation is progressive revelation. That's that's the Bible. That's God. Okay, you can't use a word in its own definition. Humor me. It's God revealing himself. It's God making himself known to us by his word or in the Bible. That's that's what this is. This is God's self revelation. Making himself known to us. You can think of it like a, you go to a play, right? And you're sitting out in the audience and there's a curtain and you can't see the stage. The stage is set. Everything's there. It's ready to go, but you can't see it until the curtain starts to open. Now, the illustration breaks down a little bit because curtains go too fast, right? They, it goes pretty quick. But if you could slow it down, if you could half time that curtain, as it opens, you're progressively seeing more and more. Of what's on that stage. It's becoming clearer and clearer. As the curtain opens. That's that's the Bible. It becomes clearer and clearer. As you go. And so you read in Psalm 8. Then you think. Well this is just about man. And then the writers of the New Testament. Because you find this actually in Paul. You find this in Matthew. Begin to refer to Psalm 8. Refer Psalm 8 to Jesus. And it makes things clearer for us. It's this gradual, progressive idea of revelation. But at some level, you're left with a question. Because if Psalm 8 is about mankind, why do I need Jesus? Like if if Psalm 8 is about man, that he really has been given that honor, why do I need Jesus at all? Enter the shame. It's because Adam and Eve, our first parents, decided they didn't like the title vice regent. They wanted to be regent regents. They didn't like the vice title. They wanted that gone. 
They decided rather than serve God, rather than serve their creator, they would rather you usurp their position and serve themselves and seek their own honor, their own glory. And we have inherited that sin nature from our parents. And so this passage reminds us of that honor, but it also reminds us that we need Jesus because we have relinquished that honor. And that is what is what has brought our shame. Honor relinquished. Second, I want you to see the honor regained. If the writer of Hebrews is taking Psalm 8 and making it about Jesus, you have a question. You're left with a little bit of a scratch of the head. You you mean to tell me that Jesus was made for a time lower than the angels? Jesus created the angels. Jesus created the heavens and the earth. John 1 tells us that. Without Him, nothing was made that was made. You've read John 1. He's the creator. He brought into existence what is. And yet the psalmist says that he suddenly, that the creator suddenly became, at least for a time, lower than some of the creation that he himself created. That's supposed to sound awkward. That's supposed to sound a little bit clumsy because it's exactly the point. That yes, for a time, Jesus actually became lower than the angels. He became like us. Because you see in verse 8, we don't currently see everything in subjection to Him. And that's true of Adam. That's true of of mankind in general. But what do we see, verse 9? Well, we see that Jesus is for a little while lower than. Than the angels. In fact, verse 14, he actually takes on flesh and blood. Why? Because his children, the children, are in flesh and blood. The ones he came to save are flesh and blood. And so he had to take on that which is ours so that he might redeem us. Children's Catechism? I, I remind you of this. Children's Catechism. God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body like men. Or or the shorter catechism, right? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in, and then a whole bunch of being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body. And so he, Christ, as the eternal Son of God, had to take on that which he didn't have in order to be like us. And so in verses 14 to 18, you get this long description of the person and work of Jesus. Because man is flesh and blood, Jesus became flesh and blood. Because man is a little lower than the angels, Jesus became a little lower than the angels. In verse 17, he actually had to be like us in order to redeem us. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. 
And notice he doesn't save the angels. He saves the children of Abraham. Now, again, this is one of those times when you go, hold on a second. Adam has been sort of the, the, the anchor. Adam has been the reference point all this time. We're at chapter, two chapters into Hebrews, and Adam has been the reference. And all of a sudden, you introduce Abraham. What, what's going on there? Well, his audience, of course, would have known that that's Father Abraham, who had many sons. And many sons had Father Abraham, and I'm one of them. Because I'm Jewish. I'm, I'm, that's my thought. Like that's the reference. But it's also a reference to the fact that the kind of language that Paul uses in Romans 4 and 5, that, that those who like Abraham look to God and trust in Him and who believed God and to whom it was credited as righteousness. Those who are saved by faith. It's not just a genealogical term it's a those who are like Abraham, who are descendants of Abraham in the spiritual sort of sense. But notice, and, and you saw this in our affirmation of faith just a few minutes ago in question 27. I hope you noticed, by the way, and this is an aside. I hope you noticed um, that question 27 asks about the humiliation of Christ, the condescension of Christ. Did you notice all the verbs are past tense? Wherein consisted, that's in the past. Christ's exaltation, the verbs are present. Wherein consists, because it's still ongoing. His humiliation is over, and we're now in that sort of exaltation state. Well, you, you pick up on that here, because notice that taking on flesh and blood wasn't enough to save us. Verse 18, he was tempted, he suffered. Verse 9, he even suffered death. And the picture here is that we needed a better priest. We needed a better sacrifice. We needed a, a better message of salvation. And Christ has become that for us. He tasted death so that we might live. He endured temptation and is able to help us when we are tempted. He made propitiation. That means he satisfied divine justice. See, that's where the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe get it wrong. That's where, that's where Lewis gets it wrong in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If you're going to have a beef with C.S. Lewis, here it is. The debt in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is paid to the White Witch. That's not the Bible. It's not because of the devil that Jesus had to die. It's because God has to punish sin. And He will by no means let the guilty go unpunished. He doesn't satisfy the devil's demands. He satisfies the demands of the law given by God Himself. And so the picture here is that Christ has done just that. Jesus suffered for Adam's disobedience. And the beauty is, verse 9, He didn't stay there. He didn't stay in the grave. He's now crowned with glory and honor. He has regained the honor that we threw away. He's regained that first half of, of Aslan's 
uh, statement to Prince Caspian because he's dealt with the second half, the shame found there. He's regained the honor for his brothers and sisters. He's regained the honor for his children. He's regained the honor for those in the midst of the congregation. You can steal all sorts of, of, of descriptions from this passage. But notice verse 8. Again, the, the writer with this sort of unclear, sort of mixed language, quoting from Psalm 8, which is about originally about man and, and creation, he's using it to apply it to Jesus. And so the question is, verse 8, now in putting everything in subjection to him, we don't yet see uh, everything in subjection to him. That's certainly true of Adam. That's certainly true of man. But is it true of Jesus? Where is Jesus' kingdom now? If Christ has regained the honor, and if this psalm is pointing ahead to a redeemer, and if the writer of Hebrews is saying, we don't yet see everything in subjection to him, where is the kingdom of Christ? Is it here on earth? Yes, absolutely it is. Is it here? In fact, and yet, I mean, you see this, right? In, in Mark 1, Mark, Mark the, the gospel in a hurry, right? He, he doesn't have time for shepherds and angels and mangers. He doesn't have time for all that, right? You're 14 verses in and Jesus is already beginning his ministry with the kingdom of God is at hand. And yet, don't you pray? Didn't we just pray? And it's now dawning on me that I'm actually glad Ernie caught his mistake, which I didn't even notice, by the way. Don't we pray, thy kingdom come? Well, wait a minute. What are we praying for? If it's here, why are we praying for it? Because the reality is it is here. But it's not yet here the way it's going to be here when he comes back. This is the big Hebrew sort of now and not yet kind of stuff. You can have that conversation at another time. It's here, it's now, and yet, as we read in Hebrews 1, as he quoted from Psalm 110, there is coming a day when all his enemies will be as a footstool for his feet. We see the honor relinquished by Adam. We see the honor regained by Christ. And then lastly, we see the honor realized in Christ. So we have a CCLI license. CCLI. I don't even know what it stands for. Christian copyright licensing something. All right. It basically, it's a, it's a license that allows us to sing you might even contemporary Christian music, like copyrighted music, okay, which we don't do much of, as you are quite aware. Um, and and yet, um, because we have said license, um, I get emails from time to time uh, from them. Hey, here's the top 100, you know, songs used in worship, whatever the the most licensed. And they just go by, you know, when people sing songs, you have to enter your, your um, information. Hey, we've used it. You have to kind of fill out a report. And so you can tell which are the top 100 
contemporary Christian songs used in worship. Number three, uh, this, this pat I got on their website. I looked it up. Number three is a song called Waymaker. I didn't know it. I went and listened to it, looked it up. Um, and, and am now realize why we don't sing it. Um, in part because I think the term Waymaker is misleading. I mean, you give me the title and I'm already lost. A waymaker is someone who well, paves the way, kind of pushes the brush back and then holds it back to let you go by. That's not Jesus. That's not the language used here in this chapter. Because notice in verse 10, there's a, there's a term used. It was fitting that he for whom... And by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory uh, should make the founder of their salvation. Uh, It's founder here. The NIV has pioneer. The King James has captain. Uh, The New American Standard has originator. That's probably the worst of the four. Um, The word is like a military term. See, in these days, the military leader, the captain didn't stand in the back and tell you what to do. He went first and you followed him. And his success meant guaranteed success for those who followed. In other words, Jesus doesn't simply make the way and hold the briars back and let you walk through. He endures the briars so that you don't have to. And when he gets through to the other side, it means guaranteed your success. That's the the language. That's the term that is used here. He's infiltrated the enemy. You know, it's a, a captain who infiltrates the enemy camp. And because he got there, everyone following him will get there. Jesus passing through suffering to defeat death itself means that those who follow behind are sure to rise again at the last day with him, just as he has. His enduring suffering, humiliation, death itself, even being buried and rising again means that by your faith and trust in him, you are guaranteed the same result. This has implications for our Christian life. And and this may be more true for us in the West or for us in the United States than for believers anywhere else in the world. We're the ones most inclined to think that somehow because we're Christians, life should be perfect and easy. Like there should be no suffering. I, I... Quite honestly, the the U.S. government ought to make, you know, and and make me so that being a Christian is easy in this world. That's really what they owe me. Jesus's path is cross first, then crown. Why do we expect something different? Why do we expect crown without cross? Why do we expect success without suffering? Why do we expect to gain heaven without enduring any struggle or conflict or, or dealing with temptation or people hating us or talking bad about whatever in this life? Your captain suffered and won. 
which guarantees your victory, but it doesn't guarantee your avoiding suffering. In fact, Jesus said as much, didn't he? If I'm persecuted, how much more will they persecute you on account of me? If, if they don't like me, they're not going to like the people who follow me. If you're here this morning and wondering if Jesus, if trusting in Jesus is worth the effort, if it's worth the energy, if you're questioning whether this is all worthwhile, then this passage reminds you of your honorable beginning, your shameful present, and points you to the one who alone can restore that honor. Look to Christ as your captain. And believer, are you struggling? Are you suffering? Do you feel like the reality? It's, it's, it's a very real possibility that my friends will turn their backs on me on account of Christ. Is it, do you feel like it's a very real possibility that, that I could even lose my job or perhaps one day even my life on account of Christ? Be comforted, be encouraged, be equipped because your captain has won and guarantees your victory at the last day. Would you pray with me? Uh, we thank you, Lord Jesus, for your faithfulness to endure uh, the humiliation that you have endured uh, to take on flesh, to become like that which you created to suffer, to, to bleed, to die, to even be buried and, and endure under the, the, the grave for three days in our place. You have, by your obedience and by your death, you have satisfied divine justice and you have dealt with the shame of mankind of your people. But we thank you too that you have defeated death. That you've conquered the grave. You rose again. You now sit at the right hand of the Father. And that means our success, our survival, our endurance, our eternity is secure. We thank you for having regained the honor of initially bestowed on mankind, that our honor is now realized in you. May we find it in you and you alone, not in ourselves, not in our goodness, not in our obedience, not even in the things that we believe or the things we think we do right. But may we find that honor in you and you alone. And would you be with your church? Would you guard and protect her? Would you carry her to the end? We pray all of this in Christ's holy name. Amen.